Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey on the Wealth Formula Podcast. And uh, today I'd like to start out by reminding you that there is a free book out there for you, and it's called Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. It is an Amazon bestseller. It is available to you as a free download as well at wealthformula.com. You can simply go there and download it as a PDF, or you can also text me at 44222 and type Wealth Formula, one word. Also, for your educational uh, fulfillment and for your uh, growth, there is a course and there is a uh, forum and a mastermind, and it's all can be found at wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, it includes a, a very robust course with the likes of Tom Wheelwright, Kevin Day, the real estate guys, all sorts of people, Christian Allen, Wealth Formula Banking stuff. And it is uh, um, all part of that uh, and simply uh, a monthly membership at this point. And it, you get access to all of that. So go check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Love to have you on our biweekly mastermind calls as well, which is part of that. Now, the central theme of Wealth Formula podcast is that there are two investing worlds, right? There is one for the poor middle class and the upper middle class. And then... There's the other one, and that one is for the ultra-wealthy. Now, the funny thing is that many of those in the middle and upper uh, upper middle classes could be investing in a, a lot of the ways that the ultra-wealthy do, but one thing gets in the way. Guess what it is? Knowledge, right? It's, it's knowledge. It's knowing that it's out there, knowing what those things are and what those paradigms of the wealthy are. The world of the ultra-wealthy is hidden behind a veil that you have to actively pursue to access. And uh, it doesn't mean that you can't access it. A lot of it you actually can, especially if you're upper, upper middle class, you know, is six figures plus. You can access a lot of the same tools, the same instruments, etc. But you just don't know about them because, well, because your wealth advisor wants to invest in mutual funds, you know. Those things that the wealthiest people in the world, like Mitt Romney and the Rothschild family, don't invest in, that's what they want you to invest in. Well, so the purpose of this show, of course, is to illuminate the secrets of the ultra-wealthy and make them accessible to anyone who cares to use them to their own advantage. And when I started down this path, I had no idea how little I knew. And that's probably still the case because, you know, you don't know what you don't know, right? But what I do know is that I don't know at all. That's for sure because, man, every every time I learn something new, I'm like, wow, what else is there? And it gets me kind of excited, right? Um, the more I learn, the less I realize I know. You know, in 2008, when the financial crisis happened, I was just finishing my surgical residency uh, I was broke, so, uh, you know, I didn't lose any money. But uh, I also had no idea what was going on in the world. No idea. I had no clue. Meanwhile, the global elites out there, you know, it was Ben Bernanke and the gang, were colluding to save the entire economy from collapsing. And I didn't even realize at that point that I should be panicking, right? We really, if you go back and you look at what happened, we really should have been panicking. How many people were panicking, though? No, we were ignorant. And, well, sometimes ignorance is bliss. Now, 
when I read about what led up to this crisis and the inner workings of those deals, I mean, it's like reading a gory postmortem report. So why do I read this stuff anyway? Well, I'm a firm believer that history repeats itself and that knowledge is power. I also like to feel like I'm in as much control as possible, right? And, and of course, you can only have so much control, but I like to be as much as possible, have an idea for not only what I see, but what my blind spot might be. And believe me, the more I read, I realize there's a lot of activity in this whole underbelly of the global elite. And if you don't keep up with it, or at least try, you're going to, you're not going to know uh, what hits you when the next financial crisis comes along and you're going to be like, wow, what just happened? And then that time you might, you know, you might have not be just a, a brand new surgical resident. You might actually have some money to lose. Well, this idea of this global elite and this underbelly of the global economy, no one knows it more than my guest on this week's Wealth Formula podcast, Nomi Prinz. Now, Nomi is a former Wall Street insider, uh, who left the dark side, and now she writes about it. And uh, when we come back, Nomi will tell us all about the role of the Federal Reserve and the powerful United States banks that led up to 2008 uh, and the collusion that occurred with other countries and with other central banks. And she's also going to tell us about the new world order that has ensued since then. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Nomi Prince. Nomi's a former Wall Street superstar. Uh, that's where she held numerous positions. She was a managing director at Goldman Sachs. Uh, she ran the International Analytics Group as a senior managing director at Bear Stearns in London, she was a strategist at Lehman Brothers, and an analyst at Chase uh, at J.P. Morgan Manhattan. Um, she was, as you can, uh, it sounds like, the quintessential Wall Street insider before becoming a journalist and really a prolific author uh, her latest book is called Collusion, How the Central Bankers Rigged the World. Uh, she's got several other books, including All the President's Bankers, Black Tuesday, It Takes a Pillage. I like that name in particular. Behind the Bonuses, Bailouts, and Backroom Deals from Washington to Wall Street and Other People's Money, The Corporate Mugging of America. She's appeared on numerous TV programs and documentaries um, and has spoken uh, she's captured the attention of global elite, having spoken to numerous venues, including the Federal Reserve, IMF, the World Bank Annual Global Conference. Um, and I could go on forever, really, on this. I mean, this is Nomi's got incredible accomplishments under her belt. Suffice it to say, she's super smart and she's here to uh, shed light on some very important issues for us. Nomi, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Well, thanks for that intro, and uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, so so before we dive in, I mean, uh, it's always kind of nice to get to know somebody a little bit and where they came from. If you, uh, your journey uh, as uh, what I, I would think is fair to call an insider, really, and in some of the most powerful banks uh, in the world, to writing incredibly comprehensive and, you know, actually pretty critical books about them. Tell, tell us a little bit about that journey. Well, um, I started out in math, 
So yeah. I, I can start out grounded in, in sort of numbers and, um, you know, so the reality that, that those represent, um, and, and from there sort of made my way to, to Wall Street. Um, actually, I was still uh, in school at the time, so I, I kind of merged into working at Chase um, when I when I uh, moved to New York, and uh, from there I became an analyst at program. I was involved in a lot of the, uh, what are now very um, more well-known uh, types of esoteric securities. And, sure. And features and all those sorts of things from from the very beginning of them and from the standpoint of programming them so i really understood um, the guts of what was what was happening with with money with cash flows with how things reacted to the market to politics to to whatever um from from the real ground up and i just sort of parlayed that into uh grad school while i worked at lehman brothers and ultimately moved to london uh for bear stearns and, and got involved on the international banking side of things um and you know for, for a time a lot of that was was actually very um it, it was very interesting it was an intense atmosphere there's a lot of travel involved meeting a lot All of right. people going to a lot of different countries, um, you know, working a lot of hours. Um, but as things started to get more, um, I'd say, predatory um, on the street relative to clients, in particular, uh, starting with um, a lot of corporate scandals. Um, before I wrote my first book, Other People's Money, which is which is predominantly about the Enron scandal and the WorldCom scandal back in the early part of the 2000s, which was around when I decided to leave the industry, um, and how banks were really a part of that, basically a part of sort of faking uh, what books look like and and sort yeah. of creating these off book kind of you know aside from public uh, transparency elements of ways that they were. Um, and that started to sort of get to me and also the just general nature of the environment started changing along the same time. Um, and ultimately, I left uh, Goldman Sachs, which um, I moved back to New York to be a Goldman Sachs in the beginning of the sort of derivatives, credit derivatives market, mm -hmm. um, which became the crux of the financial crisis. So around the time when I left, there was a lot of sort of bad credit that was being repackaged as good credit. Yeah. Now we know that as the subprime mortgage crisis, which became the financial crisis back then, right. um, it was sort of the nascent of that. Um, and I decided that it was time for me to leave personally, like morally, it just didn't work for me. And also, um, from the standpoint of, I always like to explain things to people, you know, whether they're clients of the banks or people within the institutions. Um, and so that translated into, um, I think, my need to, to be a journalist and to talk about what's really going on on the inside, how that impacts the outside. Um, and since I left, which is back now in 2002, was a long time ago, so much has happened yeah. on the financial <laughs> horizon. I've had to just basically keep on sort of going back to the well and, well, and writing. They're giving you plenty of material, right? They're giving you plenty of material. no shortage forever, so yeah. <laughs> so a year ago, let's only get in sort of uh, around the topics of the current book. I want to just sort of set the framework for that. You know, a year ago, uh, we had the author of The Creature of Jekyll Island, G. Edward Griffin, on the show. And he described the formation of the Fed. You know, he described this sort of, uh, gosh, this is this, the description is, is, is fantastic. The way he describes it, a bunch of wealthy bankers in a train, um, you know, secretly going to uh, Jekyll Island and, and creating what he describes ultimately as a banking cartel. Um, now, I, I'm sort of, I'm curious on your take on the formation of the Fed and and ultimately, how did this set the stage for what the Fed evolved into from there? Um, yeah, that's interesting because, I mean, that, that, that train ride that uh, he talks about in The Creature of Jekyll Island um, happened. I mean, a, a lot of the uh, things that uh, he writes in his books and other people that sort of get away from conspiratorial sort of conjecture and actually yeah, go to yeah. the facts. Um, really did happen. In, in my last book, actually, All the President's Bankers, um, I, I follow the evolution of relationships of, of bankers, major bankers to, to Congress, to presidents in particular. I went to Jekyll Island. I went to, it's now a resort hotel at yeah. the time. Um, you know, it was, it was a club. It was a place where the, the most elite people in the country, the industrialists, the, the bankers would come, um, you know, they, their wives and their kids would be somewhere else. They'd have lots of sort of a ratio of, of, of waiting staff to them and et cetera. And they would sort of talk about matters of the world. And the way the Fed was born, um, not only was it a clandestine sort of train ride there, it came out of, um, it was an accident actually that it happened there. It happened because uh, Nelson Aldrich, this is going back a bit, but it's important to understand how these things come together. Yeah. Nelson Aldrich was, um, who was a senator from Rhode Island. He also happened to be the father of a man named Wil Winthrop Aldrich, who became the head of Chase um, after the Fed was, was established. And he was going to visit his son in New York. He was working at another bank, and he got hit by a trolley car on Madison Avenue Ooh. in New York. And as a result of having to convalesce, J.P. Morgan 
who actually was the only member um, of uh, that, that sort of allowed the people that went to Jekyll Island to be there. You had to have a membership in order to go there. He was not at the meetings in Jekyll Island. He gave his membership to effectively Nelson Aldrich. And he said, you know, you got to go somewhere quiet to sort this out. And that's really how Jekyll Island even happened. Take some bankers. In other words, take my friends who are actually running banks around Wall Street. That's how that happened. And go there. So the senator and a bunch of major bankers from the largest institutions at the time at the bequest of the membership of J.P. Morgan, who was the most powerful banker in the world at the time, went there and talked about how to create what became a Federal Reserve or a place where money was held in reserve, technically, to be lent out in emergencies to banks so that they would continue to function. And the idea was that if they could function well, the economy would function well, credit wouldn't Mm -hmm. stop, everything would flow, it would be all very seamless. Um, but But the personal relationship with J.P. Morgan was very interesting to this. He died when the Fed was actually created. He died by uh, December 1913 when the Federal Reserve Act came out. But before that, he had been basically the money behind other panics and crises. He basically had lent uh, in the past the government money. So he didn't trust that the government would have money. He wanted a Fed or some other central bank to be there for banks. So it all started um, because bankers wanted to protect themselves. That's how the entire thing was fashioned. And that happened most recently in the financial crisis of 2008. That Fed helped its own. Right. So, still so when you talk about sort of the changing role of that Fed over the years, um, uh, you know, specifically, you know, when I think about the Fed and one of the questions I asked G. Edward Griffin actually on a, on a cruise one time that I, that I saw him on was, you know, I, I, I get the idea. I get the idea with the cartel and the uh, banking cartel. But when you look at who's actually on that Fed now, they're a bunch of academics. Right. So how does. How does this all work together now? I mean, how do you go? How has the Fed evolved into what looks like sort of a pseudo academic, pseudo independent, non governmental <laughs> institution? I mean, how how did that? If do you want to talk a little bit about that, probably um, ultimately cul- culminating into you know what came with the crisis in two thousand eight, and I think things have changed since then. But to that extent, um, how did that evolve? Yeah, so the, the, the beginning, the board of governors at the Fed, the, the people who sort of made the decisions there um, in Washington weren't academics. They, they were, in fact, from the banking sector. They, they had come from being senior members in, in that arena. So they were coming with that experience in the beginning. And yes, as things went, went forward, um, they were replaced by, some, in some cases, bankers and ultimately by academics. A lot of the reason for that was that academics sort of lent the Fed uh, an extra layer of independence. When, when the Fed was first created, it was created independent, supposedly, of the government, of the president, and even of the private banks, although they are members of the Fed. The Fed actually exists as kind of a separate, like, semi-corporation within Washington. It's, it's right near the White House and everything else. Um, but it's it's comprised of, of, of its members. Its members are the private banks. The private banks own shares in the Federal Reserve. They're also regulated and receive subsidies from the Federal Reserve. It's a very symbiotic relationship, yeah. regardless of who runs it. But over the years, um, as these academics were chosen, a lot of them were chosen because of the the, the sort of philosophies they had about banking. So, so what happened was they allowed the, the bankers to kind of take a step back and say, look, this is an independent body. You know, the people that running are running this, you know, yes, they're coming from the same Harvards and Yales and so forth that we graduated from. Yes, we know them. Yes, we're friends with them. But, you know, they're, they're different. They, they, they are academics. So they're going to have independent thought. But their independent thought is very much about the same school of thought that the bankers have, which is that, you know, the Fed is there to support them. And in the process, if it helps, you know, produce liquidity or if the economy looks like it's better and they can say it's because of Fed policy, well, that's a good thing because it enables that idea of independence um, to, to sort of be prolonged, even though in reality, the Federal Reserve was constructed and continues to focus on preserving the largest banks in the country and now by extension the world because they're all sort of codependent upon each other. Right. So if you get to, you know, I'm looking at in reading your book, uh, you know, it it seems like there's this, you know, obviously there's this inflection point at 2008. But then when you think about it, um, you uh, you mentioned the Glass-Steagall repeal in 1999. It seems to me that that's really what set up 2008 in the first place. And then that ultimately led to this 
new world order of the Fed and the government and global elite. Do you, do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, because what happened in 1999, and there, there was a lot of years before 1999 where the, the largest banks wanted to, to roll back to how they had looked before the Great Crash and the Depression. So the Great Crash of 1929, the depression uh, that took place in the early 30s, before which banks had been able to uh, take deposits, give loans, create new securities, trade those securities, create esoteric securities, sell them off to like people's grandmothers and, and do lots of other things. Um, those uh, activities were all separated by the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933. That was an act, going back to, I mentioned Winthrop Aldrich in the beginning of our conversation, he was a banker at that time running Chase. So he was now one of the more powerful bankers in the world in 1933. He actually helped FDR with whom he yachted on the weekend, so this is all very connected, yeah, yeah. to separate uh, the banks, to actually help internally within Washington, um, this idea of passing Glass-Steagall to separate the banks so that he would choose, which he did, Chase did choose, to just do the deposit and loan business and sort of forgo all the risky businesses, all the businesses that had caused the great crash, all the businesses that people were not confident in so that he could amass deposits and move on from there. It was a very smart move. Um, and that's words, what happened then. banks were banks investment, you know, and, right. and hedge funds were hedge funds. And there was a, a line there where you couldn't take bank deposits of, you know, people on, on Main Street and make risky gambles with them. That was the mainstay That's of the ultimately of yeah. what uh, Glass-Steagall was. And then That's what it. happened in 1999? So in 1999, after a lot of swipes, it's sort of end running these functions and merging them together. Anyway, um, uh, Two large banks, basically, um, you know, sort of Travelers and Solomon Brothers and then Citibank got together and decided they were going to merge anyway. And as a result of their merger, they had to change the law sort of retroactively. Um, so they hung out a lot. Again, this is in my last book, All the President's Bankers, with um, the Clinton administration, with people in Congress there. And they sort of pushed the idea that America, American banks could only be competitive with the world. Um, and this does kind of relate to some of the stuff that's happening today. If they if they could become bigger, if they could do all these um, multiple new activities under one roof, have the deposits, do the loans, and do everything else, like they said the Europeans were doing, otherwise they would be left behind. This was a big argument for uh, Glass-Steagall to be repealed. So in 1999, 90 senators basically, both sides of the aisle, uh, repealed Glass-Steagall through an act called the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. As a result of that, um, big banks could merge again. Um, they'd already been doing like department mergers and stuff like this, but all of a sudden JP Morgan, which was an investment bank that created securities, did mergers and acquisitions, didn't really deal with a lot of real, like regular people and their deposits, could merge with uh, Chase Manhattan Bank and who did deal with people's deposits and loans and also some complex stuff as well and become one entity that allowed them to have what was called a balance sheet. This is stuff we talked about when I was at Goldman in you know, yeah. 99 when this was happening. I was a bear in 1999, but, but before uh, Glass-Steagall was repealed. And then when I was a Goldman in 2000, the idea of balance sheet, the idea of being able to say to two companies, look, we will merge you together. We will extract a lot of fee for it. And by the way, we'll also lend you some money to like paper over whatever you need to do going forward because we have balance sheet. Why do we have balance sheet? Because we have all these deposits behind us that will be collateral to the money that we will lend to you so we can do your more complex, more right. profitable business. And that's how all of these mergers started to happen. Companies like Goldman Sachs that didn't have balance sheet, that didn't deal with real people and deposits, had to do something called leverage. They had to borrow and borrow and borrow against the little capital they did have in order to play in the same games that the banks were now coming into. As a result of that, all of the big banks on Wall Street, whether they had deposits or didn't have deposits and were just leveraging and borrowing to be in the same camp, started to do more and more complex securities, take fees out of them, create more, and basically it just, just throw a whole lot of risk onto the financial system because now they're betting and betting and betting again on the back of other people's money or on the back of other people's mortgage loans and so forth. And ultimately that caused the financial crisis in 2008. Right. We, and, and that was the point I was going to uh, next ask you about is without the Glass-Steagall repeal, could, would have 2008 have happened in the first place? See, I, I don't believe so because of, of, of what we just talked about, right. because I understand how balance sheets work. Now, there are there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle and, and in the media and so forth that, that would disagree and say, well, it was only Lehman Brothers. It was only Bear Stearns, two companies I worked at um, that went under their investment <laughs> banks. So the big banks that were merged by the Glass-Steagall Act as a result of the Glass-Steagall Act, Citigroup, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, they were all fine. They didn't collapse. So, every, so it really wasn't Glass-Steagall. However... 
The only reason that Lehman and Bear and Goldman and Morgan Stanley, who ultimately had help from the government, so they did not collapse, even though they were on the precipice of collapsing, did collapse, um, was because they had taken on too much leverage. Because to compete with what the big banks could do, they had to borrow more money on the back of what they had in order to play the same game. Right. So therefore, had they not been able to do that, had they not been feeling that they you know, had to compete at that level, they would not have leveraged as much, they would not have failed. Also, the big banks that were creating a lot of these toxic securities at the, at the crux of the financial um, crisis, they were lending money to Lehman and Bear to buy the toxic securities they were creating. They were giving leverage to Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, which ultimately helped to collapse them. So this entire system of big banks creating stuff that they then lent money to the investment banks to buy from them was all so commingled and all a result of the fact that Glass-Steagall was repealed. Um, and had Glass-Steagall not been repealed, there would not have been as much leverage. Yeah. Banks would not have been to create as many toxic assets. They would not have leveraged subprime loans by as much as they did because they would have had no buyers. Um, and, and there might have been a crisis, but it would have been far less significant. Is it even possible to, uh, to, you know, to go back to uh, pre-repeal days, given the way the banks are structured now? I mean, is that even an... I mean, certainly there's no political will there, I'm sure, given given the strength of the banking lobbies and stuff. But is that even something that could be done? Um, it, it, it can be done for, for really two reasons. One is that banks, as their job, yeah. all day long, do mergers and acquisitions. Right. That means that they take pieces of one company with pieces of another company, subtract another couple of pieces that are like not necessary. They, they can figure out how to create new from old and how to restructure and spin things off. That is like what they do. So mm -hmm. the, the technological ability is there. As you're saying, the political will isn't there. Um, but, you know, you go back to 1929's crash, and even though now we have more technology and computers and everything trades in less than nanoseconds, back then, um, what were called trusts, which were just collections of, of, of shares and, and stocks mm -hmm. and bonds and companies that might not, really have been as uh, healthy as they were marketed to be all in one. And the idea was, you know, you buy a trust of a certain bunch of companies and ultimately maybe one fails, the other one does okay, your trust is going to do fine. And people bought into that. And that was one of the reasons that there was a crash because it turned out a lot of those companies were not fine. Yeah. Um, and, and the bankers knew that. That's why they were stuffing their shares into these trusts. Those trusts were not that different. Um, really, besides you know, less computer power than, than, than the CDOs, the sort of collateralized debt obligations, the sort of new trusts with new language and new acronyms of, of now, of, of going into 2008. So back then, if they could do it, given where they were technologically and yeah. given where they were in what was perceived to be a complex banking system, um, it's, it, it's not actually, I think, less complex now relative to the technology sure. now, everything's moved forward so it is possible i think to to therefore separate them the will is 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 definitely right. another thing banks don't want to uh split up then they did right. now they don't well let's let's move on to 2008 so now um as americans of course we know uh how the financial meltdown affected us um and your latest book collusion really dives into something that you know certainly i hadn't really heard much about or, or, or thought much about. And that is ultimately how um, our overly powerful banks and really uh, the, the dominance of the U.S. Federal Reserves uh, hurt, hurt not only us, but ultimately um, had a profound effect internationally. Uh, and you talk about how it affected, you know, the interplay between central banks and government, it all gets very complex. And um, I was wondering if if you could try. It's a, it's a complex topic. I mean, this is a a very interesting book, but it's certainly nothing uh, to read while you're working out or something. <laughs> um, tell us about some of the themes uh, of the big themes of that collusion that you think that are important for us. Right. So in, in the beginning of the the days and weeks following the financial crisis in fall 2008, now coming on 10 years, the, the Fed had a real problem, which is that the banks under its purview, and particularly U.S. banks, and to a, a smaller extent, some of the international banks that were working with them, um, were facing basically bankruptcy, meaning they did not have enough liquid money to pay their costs, their operating costs, their expenses. 
um, as, as some things were imploding and some things were, were trying not to. And as a result of that, the Fed went into sort of um, you know, emergency mode. And one of the things it did and has done over the last 10 years to give the banks free money in order to get through their liquidity yeah. problems is to, to render interest rates at 0%. Now, and also to start to buy securities from the banks and also from the government um, in order to basically take um, those securities on its own book and provide in return cash into the market, cash into banks. Um, so the Fed, for example, bought $1.75 trillion worth of mortgage assets from the big banks and gave them money. Now, whether they were worth $1.75 trillion is, is a completely different thing. I don't think they were, but that's the money they got from the Fed, for example. Right. The Fed couldn't just contain the problem by itself because all these banks are international, because their assets had gone international, because they're lending to other countries, nations, pension funds, whatever, to buy their assets had gone international. They needed the help of the basically G7 central bank. So they needed the Bank of Japan to do the same thing. They needed the European Central Bank to do the same thing. They needed the Bank of England to do the same thing. Um, you know, sort of lesser extent Switzerland and, and Canada and so forth. And as a result of that, they could render the cost of money at zero on average throughout the, the major developed countries of the world. Now, the other countries that were developing weren't necessarily able to do the same thing without causing a lot of real inflation in their real economies and causing real problems for their real people. And they were also dealing with the aftermath of the economic depression that the US financial crisis had caused. So a country like Mexico, which is where I opened the book, you know, had this real quandary. The head of the Central Bank of Mexico was like, well, I don't want to reduce rates because that's going to like inflate food prices and you know, it's going to hurt people and we just can't do that in our economy. <clears throat> Um, but the Fed was like, yeah, but you are our neighbor and you kind of have to. So there was this, you know, there's a political and economic sort of back and forth going on. And as a result, you know, real people got shifted from real jobs um, running these institutions when they spoke out. Um, and other people were replaced to sort of try to do either what the Fed was doing or decide to do something different at the sort of peril of um, their country's sort of geopolitics with the U.S. as well as other things. So, for example, in Brazil... Um, they decided to do something different. They, they, they kept their rates high for a while, then they lower them, then they raise them. The Brazil chapter is incredibly complex. That's the yeah. most complex chapter. Brazil is complex. Right. But Brazil's in the middle dealing with the U.S. Brazil's also getting some help and some new relationships with China. So on the one hand, it's, it's changing geopolitically because of the financial crisis and because of how it's reacting to monetary policy and politics within the U.S. after the financial crisis. On the other hand, it's, it's kind of in our, in our section of the world. Um, and, and, and there's trade that's in place and there's currency relationships in place. So a lot of shifting um, I followed around the world took place that elevated China into more of a right. world power. Right. Uh, that, that sort of de-elevated other countries that fractured a lot of Europe because some central banks had cheapened money and given money, money to the companies and countries they wanted to and didn't give it to the countries and companies they didn't want it to. So that's also created... Um, inequality throughout the whole rest of the world. And that's just created, um, you know, a lot of people feeling that uh, individually or from a nationalistic perspective, that's caused, you know, voting patterns to change. Yeah. I personally think all of this relates to um, the policy that was enacted 10 years ago. It's not to say these things wouldn't have happened potentially anyway, because the economy has been actually more shaky than, than sort of, uh, I think that the main stats would, yeah. would render. And overall, G7 growth has been under 2%. Uh, for the last 10 years, even with all of these policies of throwing money into the system and manufacturing money by the major central banks. So it hasn't really helped. Um, but but all of these things together, you know, I'm sort of going to go through the, you know, the themes of the book, um, sort of combine into where we are at today in the world and sort of how that stems back to the financial crisis. Um, you, you talk a little bit about um, one of the themes being that, the, you know, the United Federal, uh, United States Federal Reserve Bank and really all these major banks that dominate, um, really dominate uh, all the other countries in the world are walking sort of a fine line these days because after 2008, you had, um, you know, sort of increasing uh, presence of China and some of the other alliances forming that really potentially started to weaken American uh, dominance. Is that uh, is that right? Um, it, they, they have been because um, although America remains dominant, the, the dollar is still the main sure. reserve currency, uh, defense budget is still enormous. 
um, the, the, the realliances, the, the shifts of, for example, China relative to its, its regional partners um, or Japan relative to Europe. They, they, uh, they coined or penned, um, signed a big trade agreement um, a, a number of months ago that had been in the works because they are trying to sort of protect um, what they are doing outside of the U.S. So what's happened is because there was such instability that was caused by, and then we know it was caused by the financial system of the U.S. Right. I know that the Fed, you know, created four and a half trillion dollars, you know, in, in encouraged or demanded or colluded with other central banks to, to create similar amounts to sustain the financial system. And that it hasn't really gone into the main economy because we see the growth numbers, we see the wage numbers. It hasn't had the same impact. The stock market's up, but, but that stuff isn't. And so that creates um, countries that weren't part of that process to determine that they maybe need to develop other partnerships. So, for example, the BRICS countries, um, which I talk about in the book a lot, the answer you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, you know, term coined by a former Goldman colleague, um, you know, the, they decided and they have um, over the years since the financial crisis developed more and more relationships with each other. Um, they've created sort of their own development banks to be able to finance their own projects together without having to rely on the U.S. So, so the more growth that happens, the more structural and infrastructural growth that happens and, and trade that happens outside of the U.S. amongst these countries, um, as a result of these changes in the last 10 years, that the less dominant ultimately the U.S. will be. It's not an overnight thing. Um, you know, there, there, there are people who say, well, you know, the U.S. dollar is going to crash yeah. tomorrow. You know, the U.S. is going to be... No, I mean, yeah. these, are, these are shifts that will probably come to fruition after our lifetimes. But there's yeah. certainly shifts that are happening um, and, and they are changing um, not just the world order, but the way in which countries and their, their power hierarchies um, yeah. have been established. And along that lines, it's, it, it seems to me that maybe it's not such a bad thing to have some checks and balances in place. So right now we have, you know, part of part of the collusion that occurs is because of desperation. Right. I mean, they have to do this to survive. I and mean, we created a problem and it's affecting all these other countries. And they're saying, well, gosh, I mean, we need these guys to make it. Now, if right. there were some checks and balances in places where they didn't necessarily need, um, you know, to cooperate in order to survive, it, it might not be the worst thing in the for them and for us. Well, that's true. I mean, if there was more of a balance, for example, in, in, in sort of currencies throughout the world or in reserve right. currencies throughout the world, which, which could be the outcome of where the shift is going, but, but we're not there yet. Um, then you would have more of a checks and balance and maybe there wouldn't be a, as much of a requirement for you know, the European Central Bank to do exactly what the Fed's been doing um, by you know, creating cheap money right. throughout Europe and, and choosing bigger countries and bigger companies um, and, and destabilizing ultimately Europe in the process while saying it's helping Europe. That would be less of a necessity um, if things were sort of more stable, more equal and just more sort of um, diversified to begin with. So, you know, I'd like to go back a little bit just to your your thoughts on the current, you know, global economy. And it's it's an interesting time, a uh, very interesting time that I think that we live in. You brought up nationalist sentiment, um, you're, you, you know, with, with Trump being elected here and the rise of nationalist movements uh, throughout the world. And it seems to me, um, you know, that in some ways is a reaction to um, – what's happened with the experiment of globalization. Um, and I'm just curious on what your thoughts on that are and, and how that affects, you know, the economy today and where you see this going. Yeah, so, I mean, without globalization, this, this, the last 10 years of what's of its permutation of, of basically what the Fed has done and the subsidies that central banks have, have, have colluded to, to provide their financial systems um, wouldn't possibly going to happen. Have right. Oh, right. So, I mean, you know, it's not like all this started 10 years ago, but um, that that globalization has has been the sort of bedrock, um, the financial globalization, the fact that banks can operate um, anywhere, the fact that banks can lend to any nation, to any town, to any whatever to to you know basically sell and create from there, um, you know, new debt securities or new derivative securities or new sort of or mergers and acquisitions across the world and everything. You know, the fact that these, these power um, sort of centers have been able to accumulate to such an extent as a result of globalization. When I say power centers, I mean bigger multinational companies, you know, sort of composites and banks where there, there's, there's more sort of concentration of capital 
in the largest banks and you know sort of throughout the whole banking system all of that is a result of globalization and the fact that you know in, in the recent period these central banks which have kind of been on the background to a lot of this just sort of calibrating rates are now providing extra capital into this system is because um you know some of the financial um, results of globalization, the biggest banks have been able to also incur, therefore, the biggest risk. Their, their footprint's bigger, so therefore, when they screw up, you know, it, it has, it has uh, you know, sort of a bigger effect, which is what we saw in the crisis and what we could see in another crisis. So um, all of it is connected yeah. to globalization. Yeah. So what happens in the next financial crisis? We're, we're clearly we're not really ready for it, but there's certainly some, I mean, you've got a lot of people, uh, I mean, some people will always say we're about to you know, fall off a cliff. But I mean, there's certainly, um, you know, we've got a lot of debt. We have, uh, you know, we've got some some issues with rates being as low as they were for, for so long. And, and, you know, the slowly coming out of that, you know, we end up with another, let me ask you another way. What do you see happening in the course of the next 10 years? I mean, from your past, uh, uh, you know, from your past experience and from the research that you've done? Yeah, so I mean, a, a ten years is, is is a good time frame to look at because the sort of prediction of are we going to fall apart in six months or or a right. year is is a little bit hard. And the reason for that is because these these central banks and this policy has been going on for so long that it's sort of become that you know the, the new normal. It's sort of a, you know, like yeah, that, that is what it is, um, and therefore they can sustain it if things start to crack a little bit. It's it's when things and I always say things. I mean, all the debt that's been created in the world, um, you know, within the emerging market countries, within the sort of yeah, developed countries and so forth starts to have to be repaid at higher and higher levels. So whether rates rise um, because banks put them up higher, which they're very reluctant to do right now, the Fed's moved them a little bit, but it's reluctant, it's it's concerned, or because there's actual inflation, which there hasn't been because there are scarcities of things, um, then you start to see an inability of people and companies to repay the debt they've taken up. Any crisis is really caused by too much borrowing um, that isn't being funded anymore um, and some sort of a retribution for that. And so in the next five or 10 or, or two years, that could easily happen. We could start to see more defaults, which we're already seeing in some of the emerging market corporates. We could start to see more capital flowing out of those countries into the U.S. because rates are rising, which is already happening. Um, we could also see rates just rising because inflation is happening throughout the world and sort of the, the periphery countries starting to really have problems that then infuse into more countries mix into that trade wars and geopolitics and everything else mm -hmm. and you have a lot of uncertainty that that reduces any growth that we were having um because companies don't like to sort of grow and hire and stuff when they don't know if they can trade or if it's going to be too expensive to trade uh, the product they've been trading in a bunch of their uh you know sort of mainstay countries uh, and that starts to impinge upon like real money coming in so when real money coming in whether it's because it's cheap or whether it's because it's expansion or minimum expansion doesn't match the debt payments, that's when you start to have crises. And we can have that. And it might not be a situation next time where central banks can mitigate it. Um, if it, It's a question of um, velocity. It's a question of what happens faster. Right, right. right. If that happens faster, then central banks can contain it. They've been very good at containing it um, in the last 10 years. That's when you start to see major crises happening again. Right. And, and in that situation, I know, you know, uh, Jim Rickards, for example, has talked about, you know, his his belief that if um, you know, there were another crisis because the, the the central banks essentially have no dry powder left, that that there would be potentially an intervention um, and, and, and maybe the SDR, the special drawing rights would come into play. Is that something that you kind of buy into as well in terms of what could happen? Is that? Well, it's the, the, the IMF and the special drawing rights basket. And, and, and now it's of course grown recently to also include the Chinese rent. So it's, it's, it's come out of just simply the sort of core holder powers and, and sort of increased its, its, its um, is certainly, a way to um, to provide liquidity at a sort of multi-currency basis. In other words, if there's a crisis, rather than to just um, pour dollars somewhere or just you know see that the demand for dollars goes higher because that's the currency, that the demand for SDRs could be higher because currencies are more diversified. So I, I think that is a solution if currencies become more diversified 
or if countries start to con well continue this path that I've been talking about, which is that they um, start to trade more with each other and start to not trade in the U.S. dollar as much, which we are also seeing happen. Right. So I think the SDR can definitely and will definitely be used in another crisis by way more um, than it was in the last one. I mean, right. you know, we haven't talked right. about it in the last one. Right. Um, also, that these other central banks will try to maintain. Um, whatever control and power that they have that they've seen or believed to be effective sort of from the last crisis. I have one uh, last question for you. I don't want to keep you too long, but I'm curious, um, given kind of your position with the banks uh, in the past, and we've got this new phenomena these days of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and uh, where does this, where does this fit? I know a lot of people kind of, sort of laugh it off and say it's a fraud and it's going to go away. But they, you, you look at what's happening and I mean, you've got, you know, you've got a uh, CBOEs trading futures. It looks like there may be an ETF coming up now through the CBOEs application to the securities and exchange commission. This is potentially real stuff, right? So I'm curious what you think about this in the context of, um, central banks and banks who, you know, this is an existential threat potentially to them. Have you, have you thought about this issue much? Is this, you know, I know it's kind of out in left field from what we've been talking about, but I love talking about this issue with people who are in the know and on wall street. So. Yes. I mean, to, to an extent, the whole evolution of cryptos, um, aside from the blockchain and what they actually, how they're actually comprised, um, I, I kind of think of it like calculus, um, which just, you know, I, <laughs> there's a thing in calculus, which is in the limit. Like if you keep on going further and further in time and further and further in numbers, you get to a certain result. Um, and in that limit um, of some sort of scenario, that result can occur. Now in the limit of, um, I'm bastardizing calculus a little bit. It's <laughs> okay. So, so, so in, in the, abstract of where cryptos can go um in 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 the pure sense of what they're supposed to be um which is basically a more sort of democratic way of having currencies exist or having a system of, of exchange happen along cryptocurrency or digital currency which doesn't have influence by um and can't be created by the central bank right. or the current system and if everybody can partake in that um, and if there are safeguards for everybody in that, and if it's consistent across, um, you know, all the merchants and all of the sort of savers and all the buyers that are involved in that, um, then it becomes a, a, a very viable alternative um, to current currencies. That said, where we are at right now is that it is very much a speculative activity right. because we're, we, are, we are not there. So it, there's the current situation, there's, there's the limit. The limit, um, that's a potential, and that is why central banks are hiring reams of people to um, you know, sort of deal with digital currencies and develop systems. I know the European Central Bank, it's like one of the main, um, you know, programmer requests on their you know, job search list. You know, we need someone who can be in this space. They're definitely growing. They want to understand it. They want to be involved in it. And, and to an extent that it grows, they want to control it um, right. the same way they control regular currency. So there isn't an issue of losing that power over currencies and, and you know, their jobs. Right. Now, in, and in the limit, they would. But But the problem is that right now, we're in a situation where there's a lot of cryptos that, that aren't sort of consistent across many platforms that are simply speculative securities. And you can't have a regular person, you know, you know, running the bar down the street, you know, buying his beer and selling it to his customers, dealing only in crypto when crypto's going from Bitcoin's going from like, you know, 20,000, yeah. you know, in the beginning of a month to like 5,000 a couple of months sure. later, because they, they cannot run a business that way. Absolutely. So, so in the potential, I, I, I think it makes a lot of sense. And I understand um, and talk about a little bit in the book why, why central banks are, are, are looking at it and consider it, you know, possibility for the future and want to be involved and want to sort of, you know, front step it. On the other hand, I, I am concerned about it um, right now for, for regular people to use in regular transactions. And, you know, there, there's a time gap in between um, because of the speculative nature of it and sort of the lack of um, insurance or security. Um, that people, if they really were going to run their businesses and it was their only livelihood and their only money was all converted into crypto, yeah. um, could be reduced by 75% in a very short period of time. Yeah. Well, that's uh, the, thank you for that. Uh, just a little, little aside. But again, the, uh, Nomi, first I want to thank you for being on. The, the book, the latest book is called Collusion, How the Central Bankers Rigged the World. Um, we will put uh, put the name of the book in the link uh, in the resources section. Um, 
and uh, definitely in the show notes as well. I want to thank you again for being on. This has been great. Thank you so much. Great questions. I really appreciate it. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Nomi Prince. You know, uh, my favorite thing about doing this podcast is talking to really smart people. Um, and they don't get a lot, lot smarter than Nomi. So that was a real treat. On that note, I really do recommend you get a copy of this book, Collusion. Uh, Phil's going to put a link in the resources section uh, and in the show notes as well. And um, I'm planning to go back and read her other books as well because these things are these things are jam packed full of information, man. She's not messing around. Um, you know, it's not the kind of thing that you're gonna um, you know read at the gym or you know listen to the gym or something like that. But if you've got some time and you want to uh, you know read and and really think, this is this is good stuff. Now, I do also want to remind you of a couple things. Um, if you are an accredited investor. Uh, make sure that you sign up for Investor Club, uh, which uh, you can do at uh, wealthformula.com. We have had some really great opportunities for investors to participate in as of late. And uh, if you're interested and you've got lazy money sitting around, I don't want to—I uh, don't want you to miss out. I think uh, you know this is still a, a time where you should be investing. It's always a time you should be investing for the most part. Next, uh, please remember to go to wealthformula.com and link and click on the link. It makes it really easy to uh, go to iTunes and leave me a review. Uh, this, of course, helps us maintain, assuming it's a five-star review, the high quality of guests that we get on the show. And, and, while, uh, and while you're on the site, by the way, while you're on that wealthformula.com site, make sure uh, you leave your comments uh, or questions on speak. Pipe, so you can be featured on the next Ask Buck show. Anyway, that is it for me this week. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Save You with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.